and deliver us from the evil one. We are acknowledging that there is a way in which you have called us to live. And in living that way, we need you to do these things for us, to lead us away from temptation, to deliver us from the evil one and all of his efforts to thwart us and entice us. Lord, we trust that your kingdom and your power and your glory are indeed forever, and so we pray. Amen. Well, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter, where we've been the last uh, several weeks, taking a brief, brief, uh, brief break last week. 2 Peter chapter 3, we're going to look at this morning, uh, look at the first 13 verses in that chapter. So I want to encourage you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word from 2 Peter uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to this promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is God's Word. Do you have a seat? Well, this morning we get to talk about what happens at the end, the end of history as we know it, the end of this world as we know it. The Bible speaks of it. We read about the creation at the beginning, and now we get to read this morning about the end. It is a doctrine that has enough interest all of its own. I really shouldn't have to entice you with some clever story, so I'm not going to. <laughs> we get to talk about the end. But before we jump into talking about the end, I do want to just point out the context in which Peter's writing this. For he has a context, and he has a reason for writing about the end. And the simple reason is the reason that he wrote this letter, which is encouraging us, exhorting us, really imploring us to live godly lives. That's the, whole, that's the whole point of what he's trying to write. He says, look, you need to live godly lives. You'll recall chapter 1, he was talking about how God has given you everything needed 
to live a life of godliness. He's given it all to you. He has made you partakers, as he says, of the divine nature. You have it all. You are called to live a life that is defined by godliness, with, that you are living out your faith. With, to your faith, you are adding virtue and self-control. You are living your life in a very intentional way, an intentional direction. It's not just the avoidance of the things that he says don't do or wrong, but it's actually aligning your life with what you are doing in a manner that lines up with the understanding that God has called you to be holy. And there's a reason for that, and the reason that he's giving in this chapter is because, guess what? There is a day coming, there is a day coming when the world will be called to account. And there will be constant temptations for you to forget this reality and to live as if that were not something that's going to happen. There will be false teachers who are going to rise up, as he describes in chapter 2, that are going to continue to remind you to, look, it doesn't matter how you live. Even if you think of yourself as a follower of Christ, look, he might even, he might even tell you and remind you of the gospel. Look, Jesus came and died on the cross for your sins. Therefore, He's already accomplished your righteousness. Therefore, it doesn't matter how you live. And that would be one clever way in which the false teachers would get at us. Look, look, the point of His dying wasn't to let you live any which way you wanted. The point of His dying was to put to death not only the power that sin might have over you in that last day when God would hold you accountable to it, but the very presence and persistence of sin in shaping the way that you live. He is setting you free from that too. We talked about how, what does it mean to be saved? It's not just something we are saved from, as if it's only the destruction at the end of the road. We are being saved to something, to a particular kind of life. When Jesus said, I am the way and the truth of life, we looked at how all those three things go together. Yes, he offers, he, He's offering you eternal life if you would put your faith in Him and trust in Him. But He's also showing you what is, what is, a, what is a life that will last for eternity look like as he points us back to the Word of God and the way that he lived, seeking to love God with all his heart and love his neighbors himself as he went around doing those very things and say, look, my life is the way. I'm showing you not only the life that you have in me, but the way you are to live. And Peter's trying to get us to see that it does matter how you live. It matters the road that you're on. He's not just rescuing from what lies at the end of the road. He's rescuing from the very road that leads to that end itself. He's saying, I'm taking you off of this road, and I'm putting you on a very different road, a way that you should walk in a new direction. So that's the context of the letter. And now he finally gets to this last part, which is, which is also trying to counter some of the false teaching that has subtly crept in among the believers. He's saying, look, there is a coming day of the Lord. And that's an argument to help remind you that it is important how you live today. Because there is a day of judgment coming, we ought to be very concerned with the way that we are living today. I want to look at that just to see how is he making the case with this particular chapter. And as we go through, first of all, we just need to answer the question, well, what exactly is this day of the Lord? What is the day of the Lord? I mean, we can, we can think of what we already perhaps know from preconceived ideas, and for the most part, they'd probably be pretty right. The day of the Lord is a day in which there will be a time of judgment. I mean, you, we just read the Apostles' Creed. 
And we say, we confess that we believe that, we profess that. We say, He descended into hell, the third day He rose again from the dead, whence He shall come to judge the living and the dead. I think we forget that part of the gospel. You know, the gospel is a word that means good news. We're going to get to this when we get to uh, Advent. But the word means good news, and, and it's, an, it's, it's meant to be associated with the announcement of some great victory of some great king or general. We forget when we're talking about the announcement of the good news for the Jews was to say, look, there is a king who has come. That's the good news. There is a king who has come. And, and what he's going to do is set all three things right. If he's going to set all things right, especially if you're thinking from a first century perspective, if he's going to set all things right, that means he needs to set right all the occupiers and the evil uh, enemies that have lined themselves up against God's people. He has to bring judgment in order to make things right. The day that he comes again won't be a day in which he offers himself on the cross. He's already done that. The day he comes again is when he brings the sword and he brings judgment. That's the day of the Lord. And Peter is reminding of that. He's, he's reminding us of that as we look at it. Now, I want you to see exactly what he says about this, and then we'll uh, look at some other passages. So, first off, what he says, if you'll notice in verse 7, he describes it this way. He says, by the same word, the word of God that is, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So, it's, it's being stored up for fire and destruction on that day of judgment. In verse 10, he says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Verse 12, the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Now, this is not a new topic. This wasn't a new topic for his readers. In fact, he's reminding him this. He says, look, this is not something new. This is something the prophets and Jesus himself have already been talking about. Now, you can go back and just do a search for the day of the Lord in the Bible, and you'll probably come up with lots of references all throughout the prophets. I want to read to you just a couple uh, that we find. For example, in Isaiah, we find it, a common theme. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 12, he says, For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and that should be brought low. Isaiah chapter 34, by the way, there's other references in Isaiah as well. But Isaiah 34, verses 1 through 4, draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. And even as you think about you know, Peter, in the very first uh, sermon that he preached, on the day of Pentecost, on that day when the, when the Holy Spirit, it says, Luke writes, fell upon them in what appeared to be tongues of fire, and they started speaking in the, these foreign, strange languages among the people. 
And the people are wondering, what is going on? And Peter explains it with a quotation from the book of Joel. From Joel, when he talks about, in those last days, God will pour out His Spirit among you. He says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Peter's quoting this as an explanation for what was happening at Pentecost. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and I will show... This is where he stops, however, or or doesn't talk about or doesn't explain. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So while the the Spirit was poured out in the days of Pentecost, what we didn't see happening quite yet was this other part, this day of the Lord, when it comes. So that is a day that's coming. So the Old Testament was filled with this throughout the prophets. This is just a sampling of a few. Jesus Himself talks about it in Matthew chapter 24 when he's talking about these things happening. Matthew 24. Should have bookmarked this one too. Can't be faster at this by now. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So you have this day of judgment, it's not, it's not a, a vague theme, it's not a theme that only Peter introduces us to, it's a theme that we find throughout the Bible. There is a day of the Lord, the day of the Lord is coming, and it is a great and awesome day that we'll get here, and it will expose everything. That's, that's what Peter is emphasizing here, it will expose everything. Everything will be brought to bear. Now, there have been days of the Lord throughout history in some form or fashion, whether they made smaller days of the Lord have come. The day of the Lord in some ways came several times upon the nation of Israel with the destruction of Jerusalem. The day of the Lord did come upon, for example, Babylon and the nation of Persia and the nation of Greece. There are these minor, these lowercase days of the Lord that is coming, but Peter is talking about one that is far greater than all of these small D, Day of the Lord. There is a great capital D, Day of the Lord. And I want you to look how extensive it is. He talks about the heavens and the earth, the heavenly bodies, which is a reference to what he calls the elements. And some some translations will call it the elements because he's talking about the most fundamental ordered aspects of God's creation. The idea is that there is not a molecule within the creation of God's universe that is left out of this day of the Lord and the fire that it's going to be exposed to. Now, I want you to just think about that because we, we, have, this, we have a lot of doomsdayers that talk about today, whether it's, whether it's uh, the climate issue or it's the nuclear war issue or plants blowing up, they're going to fulfill this. And if you read the, the level of destruction that's going on at the universe level, there is nothing 
a person, a society, an entire planet can do to bring this about. If every nuclear bomb and nuclear power plant exploded on the earth, it would not do what this is describing. If the absolute worst case of the, of the, of the climate uh, change to what everybody thinks it will be, or all, the, all the, the people who think it's going to go as bad as it can, could never reach this level. This is a level of destruction that can only be brought about by the creator of the universe itself. And you think, well, what's the purpose of this destruction? Well, as we've read through all out, it is to destroy, is to devote to destruction everything that is ungodly. You know, we've heard that term before, devoted to destruction. That's the phrase that was given to some of the cities that the, uh, Joshua was leading the people into the promised land to, to conquer. Some particular cities, he says, we're devoting to destruction, which means every single being, life that exists in those cities is to be killed. Everything. And all the goods and, and stuff are supposed to be burned up. That's the idea. And he's saying that's what's going to happen, not only with this earth, but with this universe the heavenly bodies, which, by the way, includes the heavenly hosts. This is a final day of judgment with the purpose of removing everything that is ungodly. Now, when Jesus came the first time and His ministry was announced, and I'm, I know I'm getting ahead of self because we're going to talk about this in, when we talk about Mark, but we're introduced to John the Baptist, and when he, John the Baptist comes on the scene, you'll recall something that he's doing. He's called John the Baptist for a reason because he is baptizing people with water. And he says something, something interesting. He says, I am here as one who baptizes you with water, but one is coming after me who will baptize with fire. So there is a parallel between what's happening with water and what's happening with fire. What was the purpose of being baptized with water? Well, baptize means to wash in John's case, he's washing with water. It's a symbolic washing. When Jesus comes, it's a washing, washing with fire, meaning it is going to cleanse away all that is ungodly. And in order to do that, what, Jesus, what Peter is saying here is it has to go all the way down to the molecular level, the elements themselves. Now, why would it have to do that? Because somehow the effects of Adam and Eve's original sin in the Garden of Eden, which brought a curse upon the earth, has so impacted the earth and the universe that every element within the universe has been affected by that curse. And the only thing that's going to make it right is a complete and utter cleansing by fire. That's what Peter says is going to happen. Now, in the process of that doing, he says, and all the works of man will be exposed. Now, that is a frightening thing. And if you think about Peter's whole message of it matters how you live, well, that would be the primary reason. It matters how you live because guess what? Every single molecule aspect of your being is going to be laid bare and exposed before God. He will know every secret thought, everything you whispered in the darkness will be heard, remember, from the rooftops, as Jesus says. Everything that you have hidden in your life from every other person on this planet will be laid bare before God. That's the idea. And that is, that's a, that's a terrifying thought. 
But Peter's saying it's a true reality. We can't just pretend it's not true because it's a terrible thing to think about or it's a hard reality to face. And I, I know you'll be tempted to not think of it that way. And, and you'll be falling right in line with these false teachers because their whole false teaching, by the way, if you're thinking of taking points, point one was what is the day of the Lord, point two is what are the false teachers trying to do? The false teachers are going to try to, to convince you that it doesn't matter how you live. And the principal way, at least that Peter's talking about here, they're going to do that is by denying the fact that there ever will be a day of judgment. There won't be a day of judgment. You don't have to live as though there is a final judge. And there's several ways they're going to make that appeal to try and convince you to live however you would like to live. The one, it says, in those last days, scoffers will come. Now, why does he call them scoffers? Because they are scoffing. (laughs) And what does it mean to scoff? It's to mock, right? It's to belittle. It's It's to shame. It's to argue in such a way that he's, he's, he's perhaps making fun of you for believing what you believe. You believe there's going to be a day of judgment? <laughs> oh, what an idiot you are. That's the idea of scoffing. If you if you're, remember your logic classes, Ronnie, you should appreciate this, who teaches logic, right? This is Ellie, you remember your logic classes, the argument of ad hominem, what that means? It's an attack on the character of the one who's making the argument or one who has the belief or the teaching. It's not an argument against what they're teaching. It's an argument against the character of the one who's teaching it, or in this case, the one who's choosing to believe it. And there is a powerful way. We see this happening all the time in the press from both sides of the political aisle. You say you believe this, and it's just an attack on your character for believing that. For example, if you watch some of these you know, conversations that happen on college campuses where they talk about you know, the nature of transgenderism, for example, and instead of dealing with the topic, they simply call the people who are against it transphobic or bigots or haters. That's, that's, that's the ad hominem kind of debate rhetoric. I'm just going to embarrass you for, how, for thinking the way you, that you think. By the way, it doesn't prove what they're thinking is wrong. It's just embarrassing them for thinking that way. But it's powerful. Why? Because we don't want to be ridiculed. We don't want to look stupid or be called an idiot or be thought of in some evil, wicked way. So it's a powerful way that these false teachers are going and scoffing at you for believing such a silly thought, as they would say. That's the first thing. Now, as we continue to go on, you think, well, what is it? Why do they do this? What's their motivation? What is their motivation? Now, we find that, first of all, in verse 3, well, let me start. In verse 2, he says that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. There is a motivation by the scoffers and that is that they want to follow their own sinful desires. Chapter 2 was talking explicitly about the nature of the lives of these false teachers. But that's ultimately their goal and the motivation is they want to live the way they want to live. And the idea that there is a judge that's going to lie at the end of history is not a pleasant thought for living the way that you want to live. 
It doesn't work. It's, it's, a, it's a, perhaps the worst thing that you could tell someone who wants to live the way they want to live, which is why there is such vicious scoffing that goes on with that idea. You know, the, if you study, there's a book called The Intellectuals, I think it was written by Paul Johnson, but he talks about, he traces through some of the intellectual thought, especially the philosophers over the, the modern-day philosophers, and, and they're writing about the idea of morality and, and looks at the lives of, of many of these philosophers, and there's, they're just terrible lives from a, from a de, debased nature standpoint and the things that they engage in. And, and it is interesting, and Aldous Huxley being one of these uh, writes in his Confessions of an Atheist about that. He says, uh, I, had, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning and consequently assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to stand or to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with the problem in pure metaphysics. He is also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. The supporters of this system claimed that it embodied the meaning, the Christian meaning they insisted of the world. There was one admirably simple method of confuting these people and justifying ourselves in our erotic revolt. We would deny that the world had any meaning whatever. Any meaning associated with the fact that there is a creator, and if there's a creator, there is a judge, and there is a day in which everybody will be called to account. This is the motivation. So they scoff. Why do they scoff? Because they want to live as they want to live. So they will always hate those that point out that there is a day of judgment, which is going to be measured against an, a true right and a true wrong as God defines it, not as they define it. Now, they do employ one actual argument here, one attempt to try and argue, and it's, it's found in verse 4. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They're saying, look, where is the promise of coming? You keep saying He's going to come again, but where is He? He hasn't come. And all things keep going on and on since our fathers have died, our forefathers have passed away. Do you hear the argument of that? It's say, because, because He hasn't come back yet, He's not going to come back at all. That's not an argument. That's ridiculous. That's like saying, you know, my, my number two son is scheduled to come back Monday morning. We'll say, well, he hadn't come back yet, therefore he must never be coming at all, even though we've already bought the plane ticket. I mean, that's what they're saying here. He hasn't come yet, therefore he's not going to come at all. And by the way, that is a common argument that has been engaged and embraced by the Enlightenment thinkers for all kinds of things about God. It's the argument to say, we can't see miracles, therefore miracles can't happen. We've never seen someone rise from the dead, therefore people don't rise from the dead. 
It's led to this anti-supernatural bias based on simply the, the, the very limited scope of what you personally have experienced or your, this group of you have experienced. I mean, that is not a sound basis, by the way, of an argument. You can tell the two-year-old or the one-year-old who's in a room with his mother and his mother leaves the room and he starts crying thinking that she suddenly doesn't exist anymore because he can't see her. We would know, looking at that child, that is a foolish, foolish thing to say. Just because you can't see her doesn't mean she's not there anymore. But that's the argument nonetheless they're making, as if that would be convincing. So how does Peter rebut this particular argument? Well, he's appealing to the fact, if you look, In verse 5, for they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished, but by the same Word, the heavens and earth now exist are stored up for fire. So he's appealing to what, what, what existed in the beginning. God called the world into existence by His Word, and by the same Word, He destroyed this world with water. Now, that's an appeal from Scripture. He's saying, look, I do have evidence that you're wrong. And by the way, he's appealing to false teachers who are supposedly arguing from the Scriptures. He's saying the very thing that you're arguing from is wrong. Here's the evidence. It's right there as plain as day in the book of Genesis. It's our foundational teaching. Things have not continued on the way they were at the very beginning. There was a great flood that happened by the Word of God. Now, even if you don't believe that from the Word, there is evidence from the rest, of, the rest of mankind. There is evidence from the fact that there are so many ancient creation stories held by tribes all over the world that all include, or at least all that I'm aware of, include a story of a universal flood. And if you ask some archaeologists or geologists, they will tell you that, they can, they have, that it's not uncommon to find in great deserts far removed from seas fossils of sea creatures. So there's evidence not only in, in the, the ancient stories of, of the creation, but also in the, in the geology itself that that's not true. Things have not always been the same. Now, how did, the, how did these waters come about and flood the earth? Peter says it was by the Word of God, and that's what he's offering. If the Word of God can do that then, why would you think the Word of God couldn't do what he says is going to happen with fire? There's already a precedent, in other words, for destruction and judgment. We've seen it. That's what he's saying. So, once again, the point is, Therefore, it does matter how you live. It does matter the path that you're on today. It matters. It matters very much. So what is our hope as we think about this? The hope, the hope is found in a couple of verses. I want to look at verse, the very last one we read, verse 13 first. He says, according to His promise, we are waiting for something pretty spectacular. We're waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We are waiting for new heavens and a new earth. 
a new heavens and a new earth that have been through the fire that was so thorough that it melted away everything that was impacted and affected by the curse and by the sin and by evil. It is completely cleansed of all of that, so it is a place where, in which righteousness dwells. In the book of Revelation, as John describes it in his vision that God gave him, he says in verse 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Skipping a little bit later on down in that chapter in verse 11, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and the gates 12 and at the gates, twelve angels, and on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east three gate, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies... Uh, let me skip on down... I don't want to read all the confusing stuff about the measurements. Here's what I want. Verse 18, the wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And it goes on and, and on. But you get the idea. It's a picture of something that is, to the eye, is absolutely beautiful. It is described with all of the things that we in the world would say are the beautiful things. And it is interesting, this number 12, it makes me wonder if he's describing in some way this, the nature of these people are described that way. They are a bride beautifully adorned for her husband. So in this place where righteousness dwells, it is a place that has no more death, no more pain, no more reason for tears, a place of the greatest beauty that we could possibly imagine. That's how he's describing it, a place where God Himself will dwell there without any veil separating us, where the river of life flows out that we can drink from. That's this picture. That's the hope. Why, why do we long for the day of the coming of the Lord? It's not because there is the terror and the judgment, it's because what lies beyond it, a place that we can only vaguely imagine, which brings to mind this simple question, which of these two places, the world as it is now, or the, the, new, king, the new heavens and the new earth that's described, do you your heart most yearn to be part of? Now, you might think, well, that's an obvious answer. It's the second one. But I would say, is it? If you were given six months to live by your doctor and unlimited funds, say so you can go anywhere, do anything you want in this world, 
with the six months you have left, what would your heart long to do? I mean, the philosophers said, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you will die. Go about, experience all the things that the world has put out there as a promise that said, this is going to satisfy the thirst of your soul. Go have sex with whomever you want. You don't have to worry about venereal diseases. Go rob the banks. You won't be put in jail. Well, you already had it. You don't need to do that. You know, go drive a fancy car. Go get a bigger house. You know, sail the ocean blue. Go fly, you know, go fly a plane. Whatever it is you want to do. What, are these things going to be the things you decide in these last six months, this is what I want to do? These are my bucket list items. Or would you say, you know what? I am longing for a new kingdom. What I want to do is do whatever I can to hasten that day faster. Because by the way, he actually says that in this passage. You, you can hasten the day to come. Look at verse 12. You are waiting for uh, verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? In other words, what should you do with that last six months? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the Lord. Hastening the coming of the Lord. How do you do that? How do you do the hastening of the Lord? Well, I don't think it's a very complicated answer. Hmm. The very last thing Jesus told us when He ascended into heaven was to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey all that I have commanded you, for I am with you to the very end of the age. He says, this is, what, this is what will hasten the day. And by the way, we read that in Matthew 24, if you recall. Oh, I should have bookmarked that. Matthew 24, I think it's verse 19, when he's describing that coming of the Son of Man. Then will appear in heaven, this verse, oh sorry, not verse 19, verse, starting in verse 30, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven and with power with great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. That's what's going on with the Great Commission. There's a gathering of his elect from all the corners of the earth. And as we get those gathered in, the day will come. Well, now, I want to read one other verse in this Second Peter 3 that gives us a hope and flows right along with this understanding. It's a, it's a verse that has been often taken out of context to mean something it doesn't mean at all. It's verse 9. So when it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You think, well, what is God's desire here? As God's desire, it says, is that all should reach repentance. Now, the big question is, who are the all? Because this has often been used to say, see, God is interested in every person on the face of the earth throughout history to reach repentance. And I would say, is that what He's saying? 
Because when anytime you say any, there has to be an any of something. It's an any of group. Is it any, is it, is it any people? Is people the group as opposed to animals or some other beings? Or is it any of some other group? And I don't think it's a hard question to answer. The context is right there in the same sentence, if you look at it. What does it say? Who is he? What is he? In verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Who is He writing to? We learned that in chapter 1. He's writing to those who have faith, the same faith that He Himself has in the coming of Jesus Christ. So there is, a, there is a group of people within the church that He's saying, He's saying, you who have faith in Jesus, He is patient towards you so that all of you shall reach repentance. Now, there's an implication there that there are those in the church, perhaps even who say they have a faith in Christ, who have not yet reached this point. Or there are those outside the church that have not yet heard the gospel, have not responded in faith to the gospel. Those two things are true. So one, that means that we need to be out doing those two things. One is going out into the world with this good news and announcement, because that's the means by which God is, by the way, gathering in His elect by the preaching of the gospel, the telling of other people about this great truth. And two, by discipling those who are part of the church to make sure that they understand there is a right and a wrong path. It's not just about the destination, it's about the, the life that you're living now. Now remember, you can't get on this road without Jesus doing a spectacular thing in your life. This is not about achieving your own righteousness. It's not about that at all. There is no way to go from this road to this road unless Jesus picks you up, plucks you off, and puts you on the road. He's put you on the road and say, I'm making you a partaker in the divine nature. By the way, that is, I'm giving you my Holy Spirit and everything you need to live a life of godliness. I'm plucking you out of this pit of fire and I'm putting you into this context of people who are there to make you a disciple of Christ, which means to teach you all that I have commanded you, which, by the way, is speaking to living in a particular way. <laughs> Again, Peter's emphasis is not about that you have to earn your salvation, not at all. He's saying, look, don't you understand that your salvation means that you've been saved to a particular life style, a particular kind of life, a particular trajectory with every step that you take. So what are you going to do in those last six months? What does your heart yearn to be? Does it yearn to be, wait, I'm not ready to go. I still have a bucket list of things that the world has told me I've got to do before I go. Is that where your heart yearns? Because you realize that you're saying, my heart yearns for the world that exists now, not the world that will be. Remember what Jesus said, for he who finds his life in this world will lose it, but he who loses his life now in this world will find it. Your heart can yearn for one or the other. The false teachers are telling you in subtle ways, your heart should be yearning for this world. Follow your heart. Do what it wants. Pursue every sensual... Uh, suggestion that comes into your mind. 
Because that's, where you, that's what will make you happy. That will satisfy the emptiness that you feel. There's no day of judgment. This is all that ever will be. That's what the false teachers are saying. But Peter's saying that's not the case. Jesus died on the cross to rescue you from that fire that will one day come so that you can live a way that you couldn't live before. This is a great salvation. And it's helping us to see which, which world our heart is longing to live in. So I, I guess my application for you is twofold. One is asking yourself, one, do you recognize that only clinging to Jesus will get you through the fire, just like it did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were thrown into the fiery furnace? There was a fourth person there, and because he was there, they didn't burn up in the, in the fire. Maybe, that, maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you've never clung to Jesus in the first place, and you need to, this morning, consider going before God and saying, God, will you save my soul? Will you be my God? Will you come into my life? Or you may be here this morning and realize, I've said for a long time that I was a believer in God, but I've never really chosen to put my heart in this new kingdom. I've been living as though this world is all there is, as if there is no judgment, there is no accounting, and the philosophers were right, eat, drink, and be merry today, because tomorrow it's all going to be over, there'll be nothing left. It may be for you that you, you just need to commit this morning, Lord, I want to walk the way that you tell me to walk. I want to put my life on a trajectory that you have told me to put it on. I want to be engaged in the work that will hasten the day of the coming of the Lord. Not because there is judgment of the wicked, but because there is hope beyond it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful. We are grateful that there is a coming day of the Lord, a day that promises a new heavens and a new earth. We ask that you would help us to prepare for that day, to be aware that our lives matter, that Jesus didn't die so that we could live however we wanted to live. He died so that we could live the way you called us to live. Lord, I pray for those who don't yet know you that died for them, this morning would be a morning in which they put their faith in you. And for those of who say they know you, but are yet walking in the way of the world, that you would call them to this repentance that you, you are so patiently waiting for, that they might find this path to be one of great joy. In Jesus' name, amen.